This past year, as we were praying for God's direction and how we as a church community can best live out the mission of our church, there were three things that God placed on our hearts, justice issues that we as a church were to address and to deal with and begin to have a kingdom influence on, and they were immigration, education, and housing. There are many of you in our church who are involved in those three issues in the city of Chicago and beyond, and you know that they are massive, massive issues that could literally take a lifetime just to address one. During these next three months of March, April, and May, we will spend one Sunday each of the month focusing on one of these topics. And as we begin this journey, we spend today focusing on the issue of immigration. Today, our guest speaker that we get a chance to hear from is Matthew Sorens, who is the author of a wonderful book called Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. And uh, it is available, I think, downstairs in the foyer area for those of you that would like uh, to purchase one. So before anything else, can we warmly welcome Matthew to our, to our church family? Thank you so much for the, that warm welcome. It's, it's great to be here. I've got some friends here at this church, and it's um, really a privilege to be here. I'm also just so grateful to see a church in talking about this issue up on the, on the stage on Sunday morning. Yeah. Um, that's pretty unusual. Uh, it's just a hard issue for churches. And it's hard because it's controversial. It's uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's complex. It's not a black and white, really simple issue to talk about. Yeah. But I, I'm convinced that, you know, we were just singing and praying that we would have God's heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm convinced that this is an issue that is close to God's heart. And I think that's true, you know, as you read through the scriptures, you find that there's immigrants running all throughout the Old Testament in particular. Yeah. Yeah. And as we, as, as we said, Jesus himself was an immigrant. Yeah. And we have, so there's that element, the biblical side. And then also, this is an issue that is an enormous issue for the church in the United States. Yeah. Whether that hits a local church congregation or not, from the bigger picture, you know, we believe, uh, even if it doesn't look like it in every congregation, this is a congregation that it's so great to see a multi-ethnic congregation. Most of the churches I talk to aren't that. But I'm often telling them, even though you may not see it in your church, in, you know, the Spanish-speaking church that meets in your basement on Sunday afternoons, or in the Burmese church down the street, this is an issue. And we're told... You know, in 1 Corinthians 12, that if one part of the body suffers, every part suffers. We don't always live that out as a church, but that's what we're called to be. So I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk about this issue and hopefully answer some questions and work through some some really difficult, um, really complicated topic. Okay, yeah. Um, Matthew, so let's start out with the obvious, okay? Uh, You're a a nice-looking white man. (laughs) And uh, you speak perfect English. Not so, quite perfect. But. Okay, so, so my immediate guess would be you're probably not a recent immigrant, you know, unless you're from, like, Canada or something, you know. Eh? Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, so, so I wanted to ask you, like, how did you become interested, passionate about... Tell us a little bit about your, your history. Sure. Yeah, you're, you're correct. I'm, I'm an immigrant from Wisconsin. Um, so <laughs> I, I came down to... We don't like those people up in Wisconsin. Yeah, I came down to Chicago to go to school. I went to Wheaton College out in the suburbs. And, you know, I grew up in a town, a wonderful town, but I'm sure there were some immigrants there. I didn't ever meet them. I was not aware of them. This was not an issue that I ever thought about much growing up. If I thought about it at all, it was what I thought about from what I'd seen on TV and on the radio, which was not always necessarily a positive image of who immigrants are. 
Um, so I came down here, went to school. I probably should have noticed that here in the Chicagoland area, even in the suburbs, there's immigrants all over. But it still wasn't really on my consciousness necessarily. Where it really became an issue for me, I went and did some, some volunteer work and kind of mission work in Costa Rica. And I was working in a neighborhood in Costa Rica, um, kind of a rough neighborhood. We couldn't get a taxi to take us to this neighborhood because um, it was a little bit rough. But most of the people who lived in that neighborhood were Nicaraguan. Hmm. So the situation, Costa Rica is a relatively well-developed country compared to Nicaragua, its neighbor just north of it. And so many Nicaraguans go to Costa Rica to work. And they get treated really badly. I mean, many of them. And so I'd ask some of the Nicaraguan folks that I was working with, you know, why, why do you come here? I mean, you leave your own country and come here and get treated really badly. And they said, well, at least we're here. I've, you know, I'm working, I'm eating, and I can send somebody back to my family in Nicaragua. Hmm. And that really got me thinking about the issue, and I spent some time in Nicaragua later in college and saw what people were leaving in Nicaragua, where the, the economic situation is really desperate for a lot of folks. And then I came back to Wheaton, to the western suburbs of Chicago, and started to realize, you know, there's immigrants all over here. Even in this nice town like Wheaton, pretty well-off community. And I started wondering, well, where do these people live? And where do, you know, what are their situations like here? Why are they here? And... I really started wrestling as, as a follower of Christ. What does it mean? I'm called to love my neighbor. Well, these are my neighbors, yeah. whether or not I've looked around to notice them. What does that mean for me as a follower of Christ? Yeah. And that led to, I, st- I took a job at World Relief, which is a Christian organization that serves refugees and immigrants. Um, we have an office here in, in the city in Albany Park, but we also have an office out in, in Wheaton. And started learning a lot about the immigration laws and wrestling with this kind of this even deeper question and a little bit trickier question of what does it mean to love my neighbor when a lot of those neighbors don't have legal status. They've broken a law at some point, whether entering illegally or overstaying a visa. Uh, And then I moved into a neighborhood where I live in a neighborhood with about 120 apartment units, and we've counted at least 25 different nationalities amongst our neighbors. And most, most of those folks have legal status, but a lot don't as well. And so I've just wrestled really practically, what does this look like? And that's kind of led me on a journey and made me very passionate because I've, you know, these folks are literally, literally my neighbors and I know their stories and uh, they're not just statistics anymore. They're yeah. faces that I, you know, I see on my way out to my car every morning. And that's, that's where it's become a really important issue for me. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, uh, that I really appreciate about the book is I think a lot of us um, are unaware of the complexity of the issue. There's a lot of debate out there and talk radio and cable news so on and so forth about um, what we should do and, and, and talk to us a little bit and tell us a little bit about the complexity of the issues that are at hand that we're dealing with, especially as it comes to laws and so on and so forth. Sure. Well, I think one of, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions out there is, and, and I'll talk, you know, I don't want to give the idea that all immigrants are unlawful because actually most aren't. Sure. But that's where the controversy goes, so I'll go to those points. These folks who you, know, you call undocumented immigrants, there's probably, probably somewhere around 11 million people in this country who don't have legal status. 11 and million. 11 million. It used to be 12 million. It's actually gone down in the last year or two with you know, some folks would, would credit it a nice border security plan, but it probably has a lot more to do with a really bad economy. Um, but so there's like 11 million people here who don't have legal status. And they're at the heart of the controversy yeah, and yeah. The, the political wrangling and who you hear about on talk radio. Um, I think it's really important to understand who those people are and why they're here. Yeah. So first of all, the, kind of, the stereotype of an undocumented immigrant is a, someone from Mexico who entered illegally. Yeah. And there's plenty of those folks. Um, but they're not all in that situation. The, the best statistics we have, and it's a little bit hard to get statistics from people who don't necessarily want to answer surveys and 
you know, they're not necessarily quick to answer those questions. But the best guess is we have is about 55, 60% of, un- of the undocumented population in the U.S. is Mexican. But that leaves a lot of people from other countries. There's about a million and a half undocumented Asians in the United States. A lot of undocumented Eastern Europeans. Um, a lot of undocumented folks from other parts of Latin America. And they also didn't all enter across the Mexican border unlawfully. Probably at least 40% entered with a visa and then didn't go back when they were supposed to. Yeah. So that's a large category of the undocumented population. And there's a question, well, why are they here? Why don't they just come the legal way? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. something, that's something I used to think. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I understand I should be welcoming to immigrants. I think that makes sense. But, you know, they didn't have the respect to follow our laws to come in. Maybe I don't need to respect them once they're here. Right. But what I've understood as I wrestle, you know, my job now is to deal with the immigration laws and to give people advice. And a lot of my job is to give people kind of, it's kind of a depressing job. It's to give people bad news. They come in, they tell me this is my situation, and I tell them, well, I can't, you know, I'll ask them 100 questions, try to see if there's anything I can do for them, and usually there's not. Mm. Because there's not a legal fix in the current legal system to the situation that a lot of people are in. There wasn't a legal option before that came either, in most cases. Real briefly, you know, to try to explain immigration law in 30 seconds, there's a few basic ways you could get a visa to come to the United States as a permanent resident. Through family, through um, employment, through what's called the diversity lottery, or through refugee or asylum status. So family, if you have a close relative, not your second cousin, but a close relative who is a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident, they may be able to sponsor you. And you, you, they, that might get you in here relatively quickly, or depending on what the relationship is, it could be up to 22, 23 years in some cases. But that's the family option. Um, employment is, there's about 144,000 visas a year for employment-based visas. Those are for highly skilled workers. All but a very tiny fraction are for highly skilled workers. So if you have a master's degree or a doctorate and you're coming in to do you know, computer work or to be a nurse, you might be eligible for an employment-based visa. Probably not if you're going to come work at a fast food restaurant or cut lawns or take care of somebody's kids. The diversity lottery is a lottery, so it's, you know, it's, the odds of winning are like 1 in 270, something like that, mm. um, which is not real likely that it would happen in anyone's given lifetime. And it's, it's a diversity lottery, so it's supposed to make the United States more diverse. So if you're coming from what they call an oversubscribed country, like Mexico or China or India or the Philippines, Poland, or any of the countries that most of the immigrants in Chicago come from, there is no diversity lottery. And then... Um, refugee or asylum status is for people who are fleeing persecution. Um, in World Relief, where I work, we help resettle a lot of refugees. Um, but they're fleeing persecution, not fleeing poverty. Yeah. Poverty in itself does not make you refugee status. And you have to be fleeing persecution for particular reasons. So your race, religion, national origin, membership in a particular social group or political opinion, not fleeing an earthquake or a tsunami, not fleeing... Mm random violence or, you know, something that's not tied to one of those inherent traits. Which is all to say, someone, like, I have a neighbor who is a very good friend of mine. I'm really, you know, really close to her kids. She came from Mexico in 1990, you know, a long time ago. She's working at fast food restaurants up and down Roosevelt Road in Glen Ellen ever since. She came to the western suburbs because she's got family there, but they're cousins. She didn't have the right family relationship to sponsor her. She was coming to do low-wage work. There was no employment-based visa. She's from Mexico. There's no diversity lottery. And she was fleeing poverty, but she wasn't fleeing persecution. So for someone like her, there's no line to get in. And then we know people can tell people to go wait there in line. If they happen to be the spouse of a U.S. citizen, that line might exist, and it might not be too long. If they're the brother of a U.S. citizen, it might be a really long line, but it might be possible. But there's a lot of people 
for whom it turns out there's jobs in the United States when they get here, but for whom there's no line to get in. And for me, that's part of the trick is we have a stop sign at the border next to a help wanted sign. Mm. Because mm. when you get here, there's a lot of jobs. Mm. And it's not hard to get a job. Uh, it's a little harder right now than it used to be. But there's a lot of jobs that most Americans don't really want to do that are low wage, that don't require a lot of training or skills. But employers are really, really eager to hire those people, even though it's unlawful. Mm. But the way our economy works, there's not much... There's not much political will to enforce the laws against the employers who have strong lobbies in Washington and for whom it's really important. And I'm not necessarily blaming those employers. They want good workers. But nobody, it's very seldom that you hear about anyone going after the employers. But here and there, you'll pick up some of the employees and send them back to a country. And it gets to be this really sticky situation where they've got kids here. Sometimes they have a spouse here who's a U.S. citizen. And families get split up. And I mean, I've seen that over and over and over again to the point where it's, it's really a heartbreaking thing. Yeah. One of the statistics I found that I didn't know about is so how long it takes for some folks and their relatives to come. Can you just, just give us an example? For example, Philippines and, and, and Mexi- Mexico, like sure. the two countries. If you are a permanent resident or citizen, you wanted to bring like your spouse or your brother, says, like how long the wait is for yeah. them to even qualify. Yeah. And I mean, I, a good part of my job is explaining what's called the visa bulletin to yeah. people. So they'll come in and say, you know, I found this petition for my spouse, my husband, can he come yet? And my job is to go on the internet and look up how long. For, for example, for Mexico, um, and for most countries actually, Mexico's maybe a year longer than average, but for most countries it's similar. If you have a green card and you're trying to bring your spouse here, you're looking at about a five to seven year wait for a spouse or for a minor child. And then what, it's five to seven years before they could apply. Well, you, you file the initial petition for them. Yeah. They don't get an appointment at the consulate in their country for five for to seven, five, year. seven years. And what sometimes happens in that process, especially with kids, obviously, is you've got, let's say, a 17-year-old son whom you apply for. It's five to seven years. Now he's no longer a minor child by the time that that comes up. Mm-hmm. In immigration law, a minor child is, 21, or is under 21. So now he's 22, and he's too old. And the result is he falls into a different category of an, an adult child of a lawful permanent resident. And that wait can be anywhere between, you know, 10 to 15 years. And it's longest for Mexico right now. And then what happens further is, you know, so now he's been waiting 11 years and he's down in Mexico. And he, as sometimes 22 or 27-year-old people tend to do, he decides to get married. Um, and that would be a big mistake, at least under immigration law, because there is no category for married children of lawful permanent residence. So you've been waiting 15 years, and then you made the mistake of getting legally married. If you want to go live with somebody, that's okay under the immigration laws. Or even if you do a religious ceremony but not a legal marriage, mm. that would be okay. But you made the mistake of getting married, and then the petition's done altogether. Um, and I've seen that case very regularly. And then I've also seen you know, a lot of folks in, in the immigrant community who've heard there's something with getting married that's a problem, so they just don't get married. Sometimes they can get married, and you know, I'm not a marriage counselor. I don't tell people get married or don't get married. <laughs> I tell them this is the effect of immigration law yeah, on, yeah. on that sort of thing. But it's, it's these long mazes that people work through trying to come in the lawful way. Um, and, it's, and then some of them get impatient. And especially if you're in a country like Mexico that happens to be next door, um, or if somehow you can get a tourist visa to come, which is not an easy thing for most parts of the world, um, sometimes they come some other way and are with their families and stay and find a way to work. And the Philippines is the worst case scenario as far as waits for a sibling from, from the Philippines. Right now they're processing cases from 1987. So 
some of you weren't born in 1987. Um, and so, you know, that's about a 23-year wait. And it's, the reason it's longer for the Philippines than for some other countries is there's a lot of U.S. citizens naturalized from the Philippines. And some of that goes to the U.S.'s colonial history with the Philippines. Um, we worked very closely with the Philippines during World War II. There's yeah. a lot of Filipinos in the United States yeah. who are now U- U.S. citizens and eligible to apply. But the law says you can't have more than 7% of the total immigrants coming from one country in a given year. So that it affects mostly it affects the Philippines, Mexico, China, and India. Um, how, many, how many of you guys are like surprised by some of the things that you're hearing? Just, you're, yeah, yeah. Um, what do you say to somebody who says, <clears throat> God set up government, and we're supposed to obey the government. And so if we disobey the laws, then that's a crime, and so they should go back. So everybody that's here that came illegally, they're breaking the law, so they should go back. Yeah, I think, you know, for a lot of Christians, there's a tension between, you know, this idea in Romans 13 that we're to submit to the governing authorities, which is absolutely true, and I don't think we do well to just pretend that scripture's right. not there. Right. And then you have all these scriptures, many, many scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, that are really clear that we're called to welcome the immigrant. In right. Leviticus 19, it says to love the alien as you love yourself, because I am the Lord your God. And to remember your own histories, God is telling the Israelites as, um, as foreigners in a foreign land what it was like to be mistreated in Egypt. And for a lot of Christians, there's this tension there. Well, yeah, we're supposed to welcome people, but we're supposed to enforce the law. Um, and we're supposed to submit to the law. Yeah. One thing that I think is really important to recognize is, you know, Romans 13 applies differently to different people. So um, if you are not an undocumented immigrant, there's nothing unlawful in the United States and the state of Illinois about sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't have legal status, about giving them some food if they need some, or about advocating for, change, advocating for changes to the law. All those things are entirely lawful. And that's a lot of my job, and I don't feel like I'm you know, running up against Romans 13 at all by saying we need a functional immigration system that doesn't make people choose between providing for their family and following the law. There's, those things don't have to be inconsistent. Now, for the people who are here, they may need to wrestle with Romans 13. And I, I mean, I've talked to pastors, in, you know, especially in Latino churches, where this is a real pastoral issue that yeah, comes up. Yeah. What do we do with, you know, I've come to Christ, I'm following after Christ, I really want to be faithful, and there's this thing that says I'm supposed to follow the law. On the other hand, you have, you know, in 1 Peter it tells you that if you don't provide for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And so there's this tension people feel, that's that's why I came here. Or you've got the, you know, the, the high school kid who's come to Christ and is really trying to be faithful. He's here just as unlawfully as his parents, even though he came here when he was three years old and it wasn't his choice. But his parents aren't telling him, you know, go back to South Korea or go back to Mexico or go back to Guatemala. And he's supposed to honor his parents, but he's also supposed to follow the law. So it's just, it gets to be a really sticky issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for that reason, what we've advocated, um, what I've been advocating and you know, a lot of the churches I work with is we need to have a legal system that makes sense, yeah. that says the law is important. Um, you know, World Relief, where I work, we don't, we're not advocating amnesty in the sense of you know, yes, you broke the law, but we're going to forget that that happened. Amnesty, like from the Greek root of amnesia. You know, if it's forgotten, it's done, now you're a citizen. That's not what we're advocating or saying. But what we've said is there needs to be a, a way for you to admit that you broke the law and have a, a penalty, but we don't think that penalty should be that everybody gets deported mm-hmm. because that splits up families. It's extremely expensive at a time when nobody's really excited about spending a lot of money in the United States. Yeah. Um, so is there some more reasonable penalty that also recognizes that, that actually this was a complex, it's not quite as simple as this was, you know, you 
you broke the law, here's, here's the offense. In some ways, we've all been complicit in this law being broken because we all benefit when we eat cheap fast food and cheap produce and we have nicely manicured lawns and we don't really want to know the legal status of the people we employ or we actually don't know. We don't realize that the people working behind the counter don't have legal status. But I can tell you that the employer, even if they, in most cases, uh, does know because, and this is kind of the dirty secret of how our economy works as well, but you know, most people, there's this idea that undocumented immigrants are paid in cash under the table and they're not paying taxes. And there's some of that. It's about 25%. But the Social Security Administration says that three out of four undocumented immigrants is, having, is paying taxes, payroll taxes, in addition to you know, sales tax and property taxes. But they're paying payroll taxes. You say, well, how does that work? Well, it usually works with a false Social Security card. Which are pretty easy to get. Yeah, and if you think about it, I mean, if any of you look at your social security card, it looks like it was made on blue construction paper with a typewriter. <laughs> I mean, you could probably, I'm not encouraging you to do so, but yes, you could make that clear. <laughs> you could so. probably figure out how to make something that looks like a social security card. And the way our economy basically functions is you go and you say, I want to apply for this job. And they say, Do you have a social security card? And you show them something that looks like a social security card. It's probably got your name on it. Most of the time, this is a fraudulent card, so it's a, it's a made-up number, which could possibly belong to someone, potentially. Um, the way, you know, the odds are it might not, or it might. But it's got your name on it. Your employer hires you. They start taking out taxes. They send those on to the Social Security Administration and to the federal government and the state government. And the Social Security Administration, of course, is going to figure out, you know, this number isn't, doesn't go with this name. But they don't send the money back. They keep the money. In fact, there's about 6 to $7 billion a year that goes into an account from, from no-match numbers. Six to seven billion dollars. Right. And that, I mean, they don't send it back. And what they do with it is they send it to my grandparents. Been, you know, we have a kind of messed up social security system yeah. where we pay in now for the people who paid in 50 years ago. So it's subsidizing our social security system. But, you know, they will send a letter back to the employer and say, well, this name doesn't match this number. And that's pretty much where the conversation ends. There's plenty of legitimate reasons that might be the case. Mm-hmm. Somebody might have forgotten to change their name when they got married. Mm-hmm. That's probably about a half of 1% of the cases. But because there's so many legitimate reasons that could be the case, yeah. that's where it ends. Yeah. Now, we could figure out as a society a way to have a social security card that was a little bit more fraud-proof. But if we did, companies wouldn't know what to do. Yeah. Because there's not enough legal mechanisms for them to get the workers they need. So what we've said is there needs to be a way to fix this all at once. To deal with... We think it should be difficult to enter the country unlawfully. We're not encouraging illegal immigration. We think it should be difficult to work unlawfully. We shouldn't be kind of this winking and nodding system where we're going to pretend we don't notice. But at the same time, it needs to be much easier to enter the country lawfully and to work lawfully when there's there's work here, when there's jobs here. And if there's not jobs, people don't want to come anyway. People come for work, um, for the the vast majority of them. And then, then the trick is, well, what do you do with the people who are already here? And what we've said is we don't think we should do a blanket amnesty. We don't think we should do mass deportation. We think there needs to be a way for people to earn legal status, to come forward and say, I entered illegally or I overstayed this visa illegally. I'm sorry. I'm going to pay for it, pay a fine. Of course, go through a criminal background check, and there may be people who need to be deported who've been serious criminals. But the majority who've been here to work, um, who've been here to support their families, would be able to get on a pathway to legal status. Um, And a pathway, we also think it's important that they don't jump in front of the people who've been waiting those long backlogs. Um, but we clear out those backlogs, let those people in more quickly, and then the people who have been here unlawfully would kind of be in temporary status while they wait for permanent status after the people who have been waiting in line. Yeah. 
So that's, we think it's kind of a, a middle ground. I think it's really consistent with, it maintains the importance of the law, but it also recognizes that we've had a pretty dysfunctional law. Yeah, yeah. And we can do better than that as a nation. So there's a lot of talk about comprehensive immigration reform. And a lot of us don't really know what that means, you know, when, when politicians and so on and so forth throw that out there. So tell us a little bit about what that is and what it's trying to get at. Yeah, that is basically what I just described. It's saying there's basically four components to comprehensive immigration reform. Um, and, you know, the, the order you put the components in probably depends on who you're talking to. But one component is, is border security and making it, like I said, more difficult to enter the country unlawfully and to work unlawfully, which could include like a, a more secure work social security card or work authorization document as well. At the same time, a new mechanisms for lawful entry to the United States that is tied to the need for jobs. So personally, I think it's short-sighted to write a number of how many visas there's going to be per year, because that's what we did in 1965. And that made sense in 1965. But it turns out the economy moves a lot, and it's hard to get Congress to move. So my thought is it makes sense to have, you know, adjust that number each year based on what the economy is doing. This year, we probably don't need a lot of workers, and that's why so many undocumented people are leaving. Mm. But it'd be short-sighted to presume that we're never going to need them again. Right. So that's the second piece is more legal mechanisms for, for visas, both at the high skill level where there's a shortage often, but especially at the low skill level where they're, it's basically non-existent under yeah. the current system. Yeah. And then we have to address this family problem of why are we keeping families separated for so yeah. long? Especially as Christians, that doesn't make sense. So um, basically upping the number of visas for family reunifications that families are put together more quickly. Yeah. And insisting that if there is new mechanisms for lawful entry, we're not just talking about workers, but workers and their families. Because it's not good for families to have one person here and the rest of the family back in another country. And finally, the question of what you do with the people here unlawfully. And that's where we think that earned legalization piece, you know, paying some sort of a penalty, but allowing people to get on a pathway towards citizenship and integration. Yeah. So that's what we mean by that. And then when that happens in Congress, you know, when they're talking about that sort of bill, this happened in 2006, it happened again in 2007, most Americans say they support that idea. If you give them those elements, 75% of Americans say, that sounds reasonable, we should do that. But what happens is in Congress, they're getting calls 10 to 1 against. And that's because there's a lot of fear around this issue. And the people who are most afraid of, of what immigration is doing in the United States, that it's, you know, you can find books with titles like The Illegal Invasion and The Third World Conquest of America. I mean, these are the, this is the rhetoric that's out there. Yeah. Those people are terrified. Yeah. And immigrants are terrified, too. Yeah. And immigrants are not always the first people to call their congressmen. Right. And frankly, even when they do, it's important for immigrants to call their congressmen, but if, they're, if they can't vote, congressmen don't really care. Congressmen, congresswomen, it's not a huge issue for them. So that's why it's so important for me that we have the voice of the church on this issue. Yeah. And that people... So those 75% of people, which includes a lot of people in churches, a lot of people who are following after Christ, who think it's a good idea, but they don't really care that much. It's yeah. not their problem, right? Yeah. Yeah. And... So I care, but not enough to take two minutes to call my congressman. Yeah. And what I, was, I would really challenge the church to see is to see this as their issue, which, again, biblically, if there's one body, then the hand can't say to the foot that I don't need you. That's right. And there's so many brothers and sisters that we have in this country who don't have legal status, who are desperate yeah. to be able to fix things, to make things right. And we can, you know, join their voices and be their voice in Washington on this issue. Yeah, yeah. Libby, uh, where are you? Libby, Libby, come on, come on up, Libby. Uh, I wanted to let you guys know um, that this isn't just a theoretical thing 
that as you sit there and go, boy, that's nice information, that's, that's kind of cool to listen to. I want you to know how this issue has directly impacted and interte- intersected with our church uh, here at New Community. Uh, many of you know Libby. Come on, sit here, Libby. Uh, as our warming center director. And uh, just share with us, Libby, our church, on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, how this issue intersects with us as a church in our church life. Okay, well... Um I am the Warming Center Director, and the, the center is a ministry to the homeless here in Logan Square. And I would say about 70% of the people that we serve are immigrants. Um, so there's, there's a lot of complexity that goes with that as well. A lot of them are undocumented, plus they're homeless. So um, it becomes really difficult in terms of finding employment, finding housing, um, just a lot of different things, you know. Um, I've tried getting folks into work training programs and placement programs, and, you know, they've started to really cut down on folks who don't have, you know, that can't produce their papers. And so, you know, you give, you try to give folks an element of uh, hope, and then it's taken away from them. And it's really hard to see so many people going through that. So... Yeah, those are, I mean, those are some of the issues. And, I mean, there are also folks, you know, if they can't produce, if they don't have any kind of identification, um, the cops will beat them up. I mean, that goes without saying, if you're homeless, the cops might beat you up anyway. But, I mean, a lot of folks come to our warming center so that they can get a new community ID card. Um, That's something that we provide um, and they do it a lot of times. The reason they tell me is because um, they've been beaten up by the cops and they just want to show that they have some kind of identification. So, um, like I said, there's so many people that, that come that this issue affects. And I think that's why, you know, we're, we're interested in this issue and we're, we want to know what we as a church can do in response um, at, the, at the national level and also just here in our community yeah. as well. So, Libby, why should we as a church care? I think we should care because God has called us to welcome the stranger. Um, we are all immigrants here. We're all immigrants. Unless um, someone is Native American here, we all have um, someone in our family who has come here. Um, we all have this experience. Uh, like, like Matt was saying, um, in the Bible, there's stories of immigrants um, Abraham, you know, Ruth, Jesus, you know, we all have this thing where we can identify not just with our family, but, you know, theologically speaking, it's our history. It's our Judeo- Judeo-Christian history, yeah. you know, and this is a way that we identify with yeah, folks. Yeah, and, and Matthew, uh, one last thing. And by the way, church, um, I think we've been mentioning this for the last couple of weeks, we didn't want to take a ton of time during Sunday morning, this time right here, to have Q&A, because I know that this may have prompted a number of questions. And we wanted to take our time to be able to do that well. So after the service, we've prepared some snacks and refreshments for you in the fellowship hall. 
We've prepared space for about 100 of you to be able to join us. And we're going to go from about noon to like 1 o'clock to really delve into these issues, have some folks be able to share their personal stories, ask specific questions. Some of you guys have specific questions about perhaps laws or what's going on. And uh, I really, really hope that many of you will be able to come, okay, and begin this conversation and begin this journey. It is so important for us. But Matthew, before uh, we kind of wrap this thing up in prayer, um, what are some practical, just for someone who's sitting here going, I didn't even know what was going on, or I care, like practical things that we could begin to do, begin to do as a follower of Jesus yeah. and making this something a part of our lives. Yeah. You know, the first thing I'd say, and I think this is so important, and sometimes even personally I think I skip over, is to pray. Yeah. That, you know, we believe that God is almighty, that God is bigger than, than a congressman or the senator or the president of the United States, and That's he right. is ultimately in control of the situation. That's right. So, and to be praying for those folks who have difficult decisions to make, to be praying for the immigrants in our community, and to be praying for our churches. You guys are a little bit ahead of the curve on this, because there's a lot of churches that don't want to go near this issue. Um, also, just listening, um, listening to what the Word of God says on this issue. You know, yeah. if you'll read through the Bible kind of with these glasses on of looking for, what does God say about immigrants? There's a lot there. There's a lot there. And also listening to your immigrant brothers and sisters, because if, you know, it's easy for someone like me who hasn't lived this experience to you know, think that I understand because I heard some things on television, but you really need to hear the stories of the immigrants who are part of the church. Um, and then as you start to understand it, stand up um, and talk to some other people and talk to your family members. You know, some of the hardest conversations I have about this are around the Thanksgiving table. Um, because, you know, I'll get emails forwarded from relatives that are, you know, somehow I think it became acceptable to participate in slander if it's by a forwarded email <laughs> um, from very nice Christian people. We'll send on emails, that are things that are just not correct. Yeah. Um, and then the last piece I think is so important is, is advocacy. Um, you know, we're told in Proverbs 31.8 that we should speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And that's an opportunity. Again, not that immigrants can't speak for themselves, but as non-citizens who can't vote, their voice isn't as important in, in a democracy. That's just the reality. So for those of you who are citizens, and even if you're not, um, call your congressman, call your senators, call the president, call the White House. It literally takes like 30 seconds. And people think, well, that doesn't make a difference. But that's why we didn't get an immigration reform bill three years ago and four years ago. Because other people called, and we sat, on our, sat down and didn't do anything. Hmm. You know, go on this march. Um, um, <laughs> talk, talk to Libby about, about going to D.C. next weekend. There's going to yeah. be, you know, it's going to be exciting. I'll be there as well. There'll be a lot of people there. Um, that says to the entire country, this is an issue that we can't ignore. This is yeah. an issue that's affecting not just immigrants, but it's affecting the entire U.S. economy. It's affecting our society as a whole. And it's, it's a justice issue that we need to have a voice on. Yeah, yeah. Church, let's pray together for a, for a minute or two here as we end. Um, that we can do uh, exactly what Matthew uh, encouraged us to do. Um, maybe just in the next couple minutes, pray for both our, our, our leaders in government. And Scripture clearly tells us that they're not there by accident, but that God had his sovereign hand in, in them being in those places that they would be men and women of justice and who would wield their power and their authority for righteousness and for justice and for good. Pray also for the folks, maybe we can begin by praying for folks that are a part of our church community who are part of the warming center and the men and women 
who are being cared for, ministered to. Some of you know them by name. Some of you know their faces. Lift them up to the Lord. Maybe for some of us, you could join me as I pray, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Maybe for some of us in this room, it begins at the place of our hearts being broken and actually getting to the place of caring about this issue. So I want to pray that, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Make my heart soft and sensitive, God, and broken for the very things that you are passionate about. God, you are a defender of the weak and the oppressed and the marginalized. You are a defender of the widow, the oppressed, the weak, and the orphans. You are a God who is on the side of for those who may not have a voice for themselves. Make us more like you. Conform us and transform us to be more like you. Holy Spirit of God, as we have been impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ and have been recipients of mercy and grace undeserved, Teach us what it means to be gospel-believing and, more importantly, gospel-living people with our neighbors. Teach us what it means not only to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength, but to love our neighbors as ourselves. Teach us that we would not just talk about it, but that we would live it and that we would walk it. prompted your heart to go and be a part of this march, part of this rally in D.C. next Sunday. I want you to be obedient to that voice. I want you to be obedient to that prompting, obedient to that calling from the Lord. Will it be a sacrifice? Absolutely. But the Spirit of God is perhaps touching your heart and speaking to you by taking some radical steps to be a man or woman of justice, I want you to obey and respond. We all stand together as we close. The conversation will continue. So go downstairs. Can we give uh, 
Matthew a warm uh, applause. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. God, I pray that as we leave this place today, pray that we would not just merely walk away with a lot of information, but that we would walk away perhaps with deep spirit conviction, God, that we would want to do something about it. And that as we want to do something about it, that you would show us and teach us, God, and what it is that we are called to do. Make it clear, God. Make it clear. God, I pray that as we leave this place, we would be reminded that you have called us to be a part of your kingdom. And your kingdom, your word tells us and reminds us, is a kingdom of justice, of peace, of love. And that we are called to be instruments of your kingdom. And that is, we are called to be men and women who would be actively involved in seeing justice, love, and peace be a part of the society and culture that we live in. And perhaps as we begin this journey in the issue of immigration, God, that you would show us afresh, anew, how you've called us to be individual and corporately part of the kingdom of God men and women of God as you leave this place I pray that your eyes will be open walk around with your eyes open to seeing what's around you notice the men and women that our society overlooks notice the men and women that our society refuses to look at notice the men and women around you And may you be men and women of God, prompted by the Spirit of God and overwhelmed by the love that's found in the gospel. That you would be men and women of God who would not only notice, but that you would be agents of change and instruments of change to those around us that our society and our culture has neglected, has overlooked, has marginalized, has forgotten about. Will you ask God to give you sensitive eyes? Will you ask God to open your ears? Will you ask God to open your mouth? That you would be instruments of kingdom and instruments of the kingdom of God, of justice, love, and peace in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood this week. Open your eyes, open your ears, open your mouths. Be aware see what God sees, hear what God hears, and speak what God would have you say. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. In about five, ten minutes, we'll be gathering in the fellowship hall. Please, please, please join us. Join us instead of going home. Have a great week.